Well, hello, hello. It is good to see you again, and welcome back to Your Money and a Cup of Joe. I'm your host, Ryan Ruff. It is great to be back with you today, and as always, I'll be side-by-side with my right-hand man, Mr. Joe Kaleo, Wealth Manager over at UBS, and we're going to be unpacking another great conversation today, following up here on the heels of part one of diving into all the changes that Secure Act 2.0 has brought into our world, and we've got a great guest joining us here for part two. Again, that's Josh Sutton over at Chamberlain Herdlicka, Attorneys at Law. Josh being a tax and ERISA attorney as well as a shareholder over there. A lot of, of wisdom brought to the table via Josh and Joe, and where are we excited to jump in? Now, if you recall, part one, we had a big conversation surrounding the employees themselves and how these different changes in Secure Act 2.0 would impact them. Today, here in part two, we're going to be diving into the employers, the businesses themselves, and what they need to be on the lookout for with Secure Act 2.0. But first, before we get into it, let's say hi to the guys. Joe, good to see you. Josh, how are you guys doing? Ryan, I'm doing great. Good to see you. Good to see Josh. Thanks, Ryan. Good to see you, Joe. How are you, sir? Doing well. Glad, glad you're back, Josh. Glad we didn't scare you off. No, no, this is too <laughs> much fun. Um, I'm I'm ready for Secure 3.0 and Podcast 3. So whenever you're ready <laughs> to do the third one, let me know. And well, actually, Ryan, on that point, I wish we were covering all of Secure 2.0. Uh, there is it's this thick of statutory language and and we're just hitting I think trying to hit the big ones that we want people to know about but there's a lot more that we can't cover unless you invite me back for session three four five six and maybe (laughs) all the way out to 22. Don't rule it out Josh. Ryan Ryan we're gonna get so deep into some details I'm telling you you know I hope people have pen and paper because we'll cover some of these numbers and details. Well said. Well said. Well, let's get into it, guys. You know, there's been some talk uh, that Congress might mandate all employers to have retirement plans. Obviously, that would change a lot for a lot of folks. Uh, They stop short of that, but there are some types of those provisions in place. Josh, I'll have you bat lead off on this question. And what are they trying to accomplish with this? And what are some of these provisions? Yeah, Ryan, a good question. So I think you you nailed it. They they want to really increase retirement. They they want employers to um, really make sure that more people are participating in the plans. And um, this is a mandatory provision that says uh, employers starting in 2025. There are exceptions for church plans and governmentals. So for but most of our employers in 2025, if you start a new 401k or 403b plan, you have to automatically enroll all eligible participants. And once they're enrolled uh, over each year, you have to automatically escalate their deferral percentage uh until they opt out and then employees can opt out at any time and you get notice of that but if you're a couch potato employee you will just the plan will automatically pull you in and you will just automatically start deferring more and more each year and i I think that was congress saying unless you have a really good reason to opt out we're gonna really force you to save joe your thoughts yeah, I, I think you're right, Josh. I mean, Congress did this, as we've talked about before. It's estimated as many as 50% of all employees in the country aren't covered by a retirement plan and don't have a chance to defer into a retirement plan of any kind. 
So if they're not contributing, then they're behind schedule and saving for their personal retirement. We all know Social Security is just not going to be enough for them to retire on. Agreed. So getting employees into plans and then automatically enrolled and automatically increasing is often what's going to make a difference in this. Yeah, Joe, you and I, uh, for many, many years, have been big fans of auto-enroll and auto-escalate for, for many, many different reasons. But I know you and I have talked about it a lot. You, you get a lot of pushback from employers. Like they they typically don't just say, "Oh yeah, the great idea." They they say, "No, what what what's going on there?" I would say, Josh, almost every employer we've talked to about auto enrollment has pushed back, and some of their concerns, you know, they say, "Well, the employees won't go for it. They're afraid of the conversation of garnishment of wages." But in almost every case, we take the time to understand their employees and the employer and then implement an education strategy that talks directly to their participants, right? We even break down into what we do in terms of like dollars per day made and then saved for retirement. And then that transforms itself into an employee base that begins to understand how to save for retirement. If you tell an employee, save 6% of pay, they think, oh, that sounds too high. If you say, can you save $5 a day? Oh yeah, I can do that. And in some cases it's the same number, hmm. but now we're talking in their language and now you get buy-in to auto enrollment and auto increase. And so if you just force the mandate without an explanation or education, it's gonna fail. But we've yet to see auto enrollment fail simply because we educate at a different level. That's part of the reason why that's a really important provision. Yeah, Super Joe, and, and I, I work with a lot of different um, plans, sizes, vendors who, who do auto enroll and auto escalate. And I have to agree with you on two points. If it's not done right, it will really be a drag on the plan. It'll create operational failures. It will it, it it will not be efficient. And now we're spending too much time on on administrative and corrections. And 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 you're hiring people like me, right? That's not the path to go. The programs that I've seen that when they're done right, and this is what you hit on, and and what I think you do do well because I've seen you do it is that education to participants and really getting in the nitty gritty with employers first, because you kind of got to get them on board, but, but by showing them and saying, trust me to go into the employees and talk to them. And I'll be able to show you over time how this, uh, uh, that, you know, trust, but verify, and I'll give you the data to verify. And I've seen you do that enough times now. Um, and, and Joe, this is not, you know, Yes, you're smart and you're good looking. That's why I like you. But it's really because of that type of service that that I think, you know, that that I'm always impressed by what your team does. Uh, well, Josh, you, you thank, thank you. But I don't want to get your head too big. Exactly. But, yeah, let me cut you off there. Yeah, let me I gotta say be this, careful. Though. I got to be careful. But honestly, that, you know, and, and there are peers of yours who do this as, as well. So, you know, it's not just you, but it's that right. education and it's that focus on really getting people to understand. And, and then I've seen the results. It's amazing because you get those deferral percentages up. Well, guess what? My highly comps can all of a sudden, if it's not a you know safe harbor, 
they can defer more, they can contribute more. And so it, it benefits everybody. Um, so well done. Uh, well, thank you. And I, I'll mention this, right? Even the conversation I had with a, a client business owner that we've had for a couple decades now, and we did auto enrollment and there were some issues along the way and they immediately terminated. It's the only time we've done auto enrollment that didn't work by their perspective. Mm. They brought it back up today and they've revisited it and they want to implement it again. Wow. So kudos to them. So do we have a perfect record? No, we have one failure. And the business owner says, I want to revisit this. I want to tackle this again. And I'm really glad to hear that because in their case, they're seeing the benefit with all of our other clients who many of them share notes and compare. And they're seeing all the success with everybody else and say, let's see if we can't get our employees back on board too. So I'm glad. And it does yeah, yeah. work. It takes and, and work, Congress but it does agrees work. With, yeah, sorry, Congress agrees with you. They've now made it mandatory for right. going forward uh, with new plans. So new plans. it will just yeah. become yeah. over you know, a decade from now, you'll see everybody, it'll just be standard, I think, for everybody. Yeah. Gentlemen, I want to I want to shift focus to a, a section of workers that uh, doesn't get forgotten, but often overlooked at sometimes. That's the part time worker. So, because so many people out there didn't have retirement plan coverage, there was a rule initially in Secure 1.0 that had shortened the the timeline really to include part time workers in the equation. What can you tell us about this, Josh? We don't want to forget about our our fellow part time workers out there. Yeah, you, you hit it on the head, Ryan, with Secure 1.0. It, it started, we never allowed part-timers into our plans. It was a, an exclusion that ERISA code always allowed. Um, and so Secure 1.0 really finally did recognize part-time. Um, and the rule was you had to be at the company for three years and work more than, or, or work 500 or more hours in each of those three years. So you can see from the timing of 1.0, and we were kind of in this watching our part-times and seeing who is accruing, um, but we never really had to, to open it up quite yet. And what does open up mean? It really meant that once they get the three years, uh, they would be able to be eligible, which means they could do salary deferrals, really. And I'm not sure they would get employer contributions, right? Because those are typically based on a hundred, uh, sorry, a thousand hours uh, in a year or other requirements that my part-times probably wouldn't get. Maybe, depends on plan design. Uh, but the whole idea here is that um, it does, um, you know, start in 2025 and it is somewhat of a plan design issue. And Secure 2.0 came in and said, guess what? We're accelerating. So now it's two years of service with 500 or more hours in those two years. Okay, well, I'm good with that. I think we all agree that this is trying to get part-timers in, but for my employers, let's think about that. I need you to go back, and it depends on if you're a 401k or a 403b, and track that prior service because now... This, although it starts in 2025, you're going to have to look at their prior service. It's not like you don't count their service until 2025. We got to track that prior service. 
So even though it doesn't start until 2025, I would really recommend employers think about this now and start tracking their part-timers and building a system so that when 2025 comes, they will know who needs to come in right away. Because that could be a huge operational failure if you have a lot of part-timers who are supposed to participate and they're not, and you haven't let them in. Ooh, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that in EPCRS later on, Joe. Roger that. And, and gentlemen, there's another area within Secure 2.0 uh, surrounding Roth contributions, particularly that's a little gray at the moment. Uh, and that's employers being now able to make those Roth contributions to participant accounts. Joe, in your eyes, do we have much information on this so far? Is there a clear, you know, straight line to the solution? What What, what are we looking at here? Ryan, we don't have a lot of information. We do have a lot of interest because one of the questions almost always we would get when we do education is, can I get company contributions in Roth? And the answer had always been no, because it was only mandated in a pre-tax scenario. Even if you contributed to the Roth 401k as an employee, your match and company contributions would only come in raw in pre-tax dollars. Now, even this year, it's allowed to be in Roth. The problem is, and Josh, I'm going to lean on you a little bit here, is we don't have clarity on this. So do we need some sort of clarity, uh, clarifying legislation? Or will the Department of Labor or the IRS come out with some sort of clarifying document as to how this gets implemented? And does FICA get paid? And if so, by who? What do you know? Uh, yeah, no, Joe, I think I know as much as you do. And so what does that mean? If a, if a client came to me and said, you know what, I want to start doing this right now, my conservative tax brain would say, I, I wouldn't. Like, it, we just don't have the clarity and you could be walking into a trap. And I don't think it'll take too long for us to get this guidance that will clarify it. And and I just wouldn't be the the, you know, I wouldn't be the test case. Um, I'd wait and and let it ride. And that's just kind of a conservative meeting from a tax and an employer position. Like, I'm always, again, I'm worried about my clients. So I'm trying to say, well, is that really something we want to do now? Couldn't we wait a year? I mean, if you really want to give people a benefit, just give them more money, right? So, and and then let's revisit a year from now. That's my view. Sure. Interesting enough. Uh, Josh, another big component within some of these plans is this this provision called a hardship provision so for the you know on behalf of the employers out there that's what today's episode is geared towards what is this hardship provision and you know why is it now allowed talk to me about this provision in particular so we've always had hardship um provisions within our qualified plans again they're optional so you can have a plan that does not provide hardships but the idea behind it, I think, is a good one. And that is, if you really come on hard times, um, and the old law was you really had to prove it to your employer. And, and if you really followed the law and the regulations, they're pretty tough on, on documenting that this person really has no other money and that they're really in a hardship. And, and so employers had to really dig in and get documentation that if you think about it is probably pretty sensitive, right? Um, and, and, and so 
I never liked hardships for, for protecting my employers and, and the tax consequences to the employees isn't good. And so I never liked it, even though I, I'm, I get it. You want to take care of your employees, but it takes away from retirement. And, and so for all those reasons, I didn't like it, but of course we did it. And if a client came to me, I'd say, you really got to do this right. It's a fiduciary issue. It's a qualification of your plan issue if you don't do this right. And so this uh, Secure 2.0 actually came in and said, all right, you know what? We get it. I guess Congress wants us to do hardships. And it said, uh, if you have your employees certify, you know, that they understand what, what it's supposed to be, uh, what that hardship really is to qualify, and they self-certify and say, oh, yeah, employer, I promise you this really is for a hardship. We don't have to get all that information anymore, and I don't need that sensitive document. And, and it's a get-out-of-jail-free card for the employer if the employee really is using it to go to Vegas and, and have fun. Now, if the employer really does know that it's a sham, um, and Treasury is going to come out, this was part of, of Secure 2.0, Treasury is going to give us guidance on this. If you know it's BS, like you know they're taking it to go to Las Vegas, then even that self-certification, you're not going to be off the hook. So, you know, I, I still don't like it very much, but it's there. And for employers that feel like they really need it for employees, and that's where I will say, okay, yes, let's go. If you need it for your employees, that's more important. Let's run hardships. Let's run it right. I would definitely adopt because it's optional. I would adopt this new hardship provision. And uh, Josh, if please. I can interrupt, right, and share a point. I think Congress did a good thing by piggybacking the emergency savings account provision here as well, right? Ryan, in the past, employees weren't always doing a good job having an emergency savings account. And because they didn't, they had to dig into either get a loan or a hardship provision from their plan. And one of the things that Congress did here in Secure 2.0 then was take the emergency savings portion of it and say record keepers establish an emergency savings account now so that way they don't even have to take out of the retirement. They can take from that emergency savings account and use that instead. Josh, what are your thoughts? You know, I, I like it. Again, kind of like hardships, it's a good idea. And and if nobody's saving, and this becomes kind of the beginner model to savings, and you do get them kind of a, a safety fund, and they don't need it, then then they're probably starting to, they, you could easily shift them on to then the retirement plan, right? So I, I kind of like it for the that. Um, and and it will ease my hardships, right? Because if I have the savings account, then people can use that and, and it should be pretty easy. Uh, sorry to be a worrier again, but for my employers, boy, the complexity around this and running it operationally. Um, and and I, I, you're going to put that on your third party administrator and they're not going to do it at their current fees, right? So there will be cost to it. And, and so you're just going to have to weigh those burdens, uh, plan document, you know, is going to be more complicated. So, but, but we're used to that. I mean, our plans are already sophisticated. Our people who run our plans are sophisticated. So I think it's just, let's, you know, look at it. And if it fits, yeah, let's do it. And, and, and I think we should do it. 
Uh, and Joe, there are I, a few think, others. Go ahead, please. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think it's going to fall not only on administrators, but also record keepers and the companies, Ryan, the, that's a company that holds the 401k or the 403b money. I think it's going to fall on them and in talking with many of them already, they've already been building, have one built or are quickly and actively building that part of the process out. So I think it's going to take some work, but uh, we're already seeing that people we're anticipating this rule coming forward. Yeah, sure. Joe, it's, it, it is optional and it doesn't start until 2024. So you're, I like what you're saying is I would go out this year and really talk to people about it. And hopefully when it does go into effect, we've got a much better, you know, structure for it in place. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. Mm -hmm. I think industry is going to step up for this one. Well, uh, um, good insights there, gentlemen on, on hardship. And quick, Ryan, sorry, yeah, fall, yeah, I don't away. need to cut you off. I'm sorry, but. There's a few other things that are similar to hardship and the savings that are further out. So I just want to hit them real quick so that employers are aware that they're out there. Uh, and actually, some of them do start to hit even now. So, for example, Secure 2.0 has now a penalty-free withdrawal for emergency expenses. Now, that is optional, but that's another thing similar to savings is you could put in an emergency expense. I think it'll be similar to, to hardships and will be uh, self-certified. So that's out there as, as another technique. So I'd want employers to think about that. The others that uh, are further out are penalty-free withdrawals in the event of domestic abuse, 2024. Uh, penalty-free withdrawals for terminal illness starts now. It's actually retroactive, so we it can go now. So isn't that interesting is like, we don't have planned document language, so we'd have to think about this. We won't get it for a while from our vendors. So, but if you feel like you want to as an employer, you could allow people to take a penalty-free withdrawal for a terminal illness. And I know a lot of employers that have come to me saying, I got that. How do I help these people? And, and we didn't have that before. So, so I think that's important. That's now this is mandatory. Secure 1.0 brought it in, and I think it's important for everybody to know is that right now, people are allowed to take a qualified uh, distribution for birth or adoption and have three years to pay it back. And so you, if you, participants come to you and say, I want to do this, you got to do it. And uh, that's now been um, uh, modified a little bit by Secure 2.0. So I just wanted to remind people that that we have these uh, birth or adoption distributions that can be repaid back should remind us of CARES Act and COVID. Remember how we could take COVID distributions, but if you paid them back, it was an interest-free loan and and you no harm, no foul, no distribution. So they're take copy and paste it and put that now with qualified birth and adoption. So I, I would just say employers, by the way, that's mandatory and it's now. So I'd work with your TPAs on plan document language and, and operational issues around that. Really interesting. Appreciate that, Josh. Guys, a big part of all of this, this conversation is the amount of information. There's a lot to, lot to take in, a lot to consider. And as I understand it, Joe, notices have to go out to employees from their employer every year. Talk to me about these notices. What kind of notices are they? And what is changing, if anything, here with specifically the notification process? 
Yeah, Ryan, when you're in a retirement plan, when you first go into the retirement plan and then each year, there are different notices you're going to receive. Like when you get a retirement plan, you become eligible, you'll get a whole slew of information, right? If there's a company match, what does that look like? If you're going to be auto-enrolled and auto-increased, there's a notice for that. If your plan is safe harbor, you'll notice about that. You should get the summary plan description, the SPD. So all of those go out at the entry, right? When you enter the plan and each of there are notices that you should keep getting, especially if you are in the plan. So when we mentioned auto enrollment, that's going to come each and every year for those employees. So plans are, they've got a slew of notices, some initially fewer than each year if you're in the plan. So the good thing is those notices are going to continue to go out. However, Secure 2.0 said, employers, if you have some employees who have actively chosen not to participate, you don't have to keep sending it to unenrolled participants, essentially, right? Those employees that say, nah, I don't want to do this. So that, that gets turned off. There may be a notice or two to remind them that they can, but you don't have to send all of the notices, which is helpful. One of the things we've also talked about in the past, Ryan, is Right now, you can send notices electronically, so it's quicker, less expensive. So if you've got emails on file, especially if they're current employees, you can send notices electronically. And one of the things we often encourage HR folks to do is on exit interviews, if someone's leaving the company, if you can get a personal email address, you can send notices that way if they remained a terminated participant of the plan. So there is some good news that notices won't have to continue on infinitum and for all of them, uh, for all employees. Good to know there, Joe. Yeah, notices obviously being a big part of that communication, that back and forth with all these changes. Um, look, gentlemen, we're all human, right? Mistakes can creep into play. We talk about mitigating mistakes a lot on this show in different ways, shapes, and forms. As I understand it, there's also a few technical rule changes that are going on with how we find mistakes and then how we fix them if we find them. Josh, could you give us an overview on what this looks like from an employer's perspective in terms of there are three levels of corrections uh, and what these rules say that employers can do if they find a mistake how they should do it talk us through these three levels yeah the way you know ryan the way i like to look at this is um if you look at any at just the most basic 401k plan uh, if you look at joe's document it's about that thick and and it really repeats um so much internal revenue code and regulations and then ERISA and Department of Labor regulations that pretty much as soon as an employer adopts a 401k plan, they're violating something. Uh, sadly, right? They're just so complicated. And unless you are uh, um, have the brain of Joe as an investment advisor, and then TPA as a third-party administrator, an ERISA lawyer, I mean, it's just impossible almost. So Thankfully, um, Congress, uh, uh, not Congress, the Internal Revenue Service over time developed with practitioners. I've grown up with what we call employee plans correction resolution system, EP 
CRS, Employee Plans Correction Resolution System. And some people call it EPCRS, I say EPCRS, uh, but it has now come ingrained into our benefit culture. Um, and the reason why is the Internal Revenue Service developed a revenue procedure, which is pretty high authority. It, you're bound by it. All taxpayers are, are bound by it if they choose to follow it, revenue procedure. And every so often, the, the Treasury Department with the Internal Revenue Service would update EPCRS and provide us new ways for voluntarily correcting plan errors. And that's why they called it EPCRS, Employee Plans Correction Resolution System. And the idea is we want to encourage you practitioners and employers to voluntarily correct your problems when you find them and try to find them quick. You don't have to tell us at all. If it's small and it's easy, you just correct it under this revenue procedure. And so we call that self-correction. That's kind of stage one. If I find a problem and it's small, then in, when you go to this revenue procedure, it guides you through principles of correction and, and how you can qualify. And there's a lot of steps. You can't, you can't necessarily use it all the time. And, and you have to really meet what's called insignificant to be in this self-correction. But every time the revenue procedure has come out over the years and restates, it's expanded what can be corrected through self-correction. And why do we care so much about this? Because in this revenue procedure, it says, if you follow this procedure and you do it the right way, even in this self-correction where you don't tell the IRS anything, it becomes a golden shield. If you were ever audited by the IRS and they want to look at it, if you've done it properly, they can't touch you. They can't penalize you. They have to leave it alone. Now, if they find you did it wrong or they find other things, you're not protected. But as long as you do it properly, it is a golden shield. It's, it's really quite amazing. And, and it's because the government really wants us to do it. And like some of my other correction programs with like the Department of Labor, this is a black box. You will not get audited if we use this program. Uh, the IRS has been very good because, again, they really want to encourage that voluntary compliance. Okay, well, let's say an employer comes to me and it's not insignificant. We find a pretty big error. Um, well, and, and it's gone on for many years. That's what typically makes it significant. A lot of people, a lot of money, a lot of years. Well, we can't self-correct. The IRS says that's too big. You need to come into us and you report to us what the correction method is, how you're going to correct it. And if you do it correctly under with us, with the IRS, we will send you a compliance statement that says, again, golden shield. You did this. This is how you corrected it. Golden shield. So we call that VCP. So moving up from self-correction to voluntary correction program, step two. And we do this every day, all day long is, come on, guys, if you find a problem, let's fix it quick because it's just such a brilliant program. So we're very big proponents of it, have been for years. Um, 
The final step, step three, is what we call audit cap. And audit cap is where you're thrown if you don't voluntarily correct and the IRS finds it. They come in and they audit you and they find it, okay? That's not good because under EPCRS, if you're in audit cap, the IRS can really hit the employer with some big penalties. And, and so that's the stick um, or, or maybe the carrot is, is another way. The carrot is come in and self-correct and you don't pay anything. You don't talk to the IRS and you have a golden shield. The next carrot is, ooh, big one. You should have caught it earlier. Pay a little fee, come into the IRS and you'll get the golden shield. But if we catch you, oh yeah, we're gonna slap your wrist. In fact, we're, we're gonna slap it pretty hard. So our jobs as ERISA lawyers is to keep you out of that audit cap and, and to really utilize the better part of the program. Okay, all of that, why? Secure 2.0 commanded the IRS to go expand EPCRS and to open it up now to IRAs. So it used to be my IRAs had no way to self-correct. This is huge. This is beautiful for me because it was, well, you know, we either need to sweep it under the rug, which I never like to do that, or we need to go pay excise taxes like Joe was talking about in episode one. Go listen. So it's it's an interesting uh, dynamic there that, that develops. And so Congress said, yep, open it up to IRA, to IRAs, uh, open it up to other type of arrangements. Uh, we're really going to allow loan corrections in a big way. And all of it under SCP, that first tier, you don't have to come in like, here you go. If you have this issue and you catch it, just correct it and move on. So they really are trying to open up and Congress is now, this was before it was just IRS saying, hey, we've talked to practitioners, we see what you guys are doing and we think we should open this up. So they'll restate it in a revenue procedure. This is one of the few times Congress has come in and said, hey, IRS, you have to go restate your revenue procedure and add these new programs. And until they do, we can rely on the statutory language we have now. Um, so sorry, long-winded way of saying a couple of things. One, if you have a problem, don't be an ostrich and stick your head in the sand. Like the lawnmower's coming. So be, be the one who raises it and raise it quickly. And let's get the data because we can come in and use that EPCRS to wrap you up in the golden shield and get you back to operating smoothly. Um, if you find a big error, again, it's okay. Let's let's embrace it. Let's fix it and get you going again. So I'm a big EPCRS fan and I really push it on employers because if you don't and you get audited, you're going to get hit hard. However, Congress with Secure 2.0 said, IRS, now before you go in and audit, you need to give the taxpayer time to review their plan and see if they find any errors. And if they do, they're allowed to correct under EPCRS before your audit prevents them from doing so. We never had that before. If you were under audit, EPCRS was out the door. Um, so this and I is think really, Josh- yeah, yeah, go ahead, Joe. Yeah, I think, I think this is Congress saying, look, 
this is mom and dad and business people trying to run businesses, not being fearful of the government, fearful of the IRS or Department of Labor, yes. and helping them get back on track, right? I'll give you an example, uh, Ryan, that Josh and I had talked about a couple of examples, actually. So I have a, a husband and wife who ran a company, and when they were running the company, she didn't get a chance to submit the payroll for about six weeks. They got busy. They had some extenuating circumstances at their company. They did go through self-correction, and the penalty was $108. That's it. Great. And she just made it as an offhand comment that she hadn't made payroll. And I said, Mrs. Business Owner, look, that's a problem, but it's easily fixable. And she got worried when I said there was a problem. I said, but look, there are steps that we can go through with self-correction to get this all fixed. We worked with their administrator. Boom. It was done in about two weeks. Note was made in the file, never a problem. Another example, though, we got Josh involved. We had a C-suite executive who was not doing what they needed to do, and they had a health issue. And at some point, right, the government did get involved, and Josh got involved, and we explained what happened, and that has been resolved. But it built up far bigger than what it should have, first of all. And second, because Josh was able to, one, understand the rules, two, play by the rules, and three, help the government understand, look, this is a family-run business. They weren't trying to skirt rules. They just didn't execute properly. There was a process, so it wasn't overly punitive. That did cost them a little bit more, but it was still fixable. And that plan is back up and running the way it needed to be. So there, I think, Josh, you're right on target. We don't want people to be an ostrich and put their head in the sand. There are methods, though, that if they have an issue to call, call their advisor, their administrator, their record keeper and say, I, I think this might not be right. Or is there something we have to fix? It's always better to self-report the issue than have the government come in on them. Josh, are, oh, are you in agreement? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Joe. And and what I would add to that is don't call me first. Um, <laughs> my billable rate is expensive, right? Call call Joe first, or like you said, the TPA, and, and those vendors are already charging you a fee, a set fee. So really use your vendors that have a set fee, right? That they're there. And it, it shows you're doing your fiduciary duties if you're really utilizing your vendors, you're monitoring them, you're really making sure they're doing their job. Uh, and the more you talk to them, the more they'll give you things back. Like Joe said, you know, I miss payroll. Oh, well, let's help you. So communication, I think, is really a big one, Joe, and, and I am big on that. And you're right. Um, I, I use Pulp Fiction, the movie Pulp Fiction, is that um, if you call me ahead of time before you do something and we can talk through it, chances are for very little in legal fees, we're going to get you on the right track. But typically what happens is what happened in Pulp Fiction, where they blow the guy's brains out in the back of the car and they have to call the fixer, uh, the wolf, right? Or, yeah, I think it was the wolf or what? I forget. Harvey Keitel's character who comes with the two bags and has to clean up everything. And that's going to be very expensive at my billable rate. And you're kind of out of the control because you you need us to do it. And, and now it's just pain. So I'm a big on, you know, if you can bring people in and again, bring Joe in or your, your, your vendors in first so they can mitigate, you're going to save a lot of money and avoid me on the back end. Roger, that. this is great, great insight, guys. I appreciate this. And 
Boy, I mean, clearly there is a lot of changes in this act, a lot of things to consider, uh, and it's frankly, it's going to change the face of the way an employee views retirement, uh, you know, and how an employer views retirement, just retirement as a whole, you know, for the American worker and his employer. So, Josh, uh, you know, as we're wrapping up our conversation today, you know, could you kind of put a capstone on it, if you will, how is it that you personally can help an employer, if anybody, or maybe even a listener, a viewer of this show that has any questions, what would be the best way they can get in touch with you, answer, you know, and, and just pick your brain or open up a dialogue if they themselves have questions? Brian, thank you. Um, you know, uh, you can find me on the internet easy, and, and Joe has my contact, call Joe, he can get you to me or however you need to. I have clients from one individual to very, very large employers with thousands of employees. And it's because we do employee benefit plans and one person businesses to thousand employee businesses, they all have employee benefit plans. So really um, the most effective we can be and, and we typically are with our clients is like I said, they call us ahead of time. So they come and they say, hey, we're thinking of doing this and so I work with them uh, kind of in really small little bits and their, their vendors to just say, this is what I would do and why we're, we're really, it's strategy. You know, I would do this because of X, Y, and Z because of your business and where you are, but I probably wouldn't do this one because of your business and A, B, and C. Um, and, and that's what I'm doing right now with my clients is I'm going to them and saying, here are all the changes kind of in a priority, what's what's hitting right now, what's coming next year, what's we can wait. And with those changes, making these optional versus, uh, or if they're mandatory, making sure we're putting them in place. And then we're, we're putting on the timeline, when do we have to amend our plan to comply with this, right? So what we're gonna be getting into, and our plans haven't had this for a while, are these uh, amendment period cycles where we need to be amending our plan um, timely, and, but we're operating it without a plan amendment for quite some period. And so we gotta be able to show that we're doing it right until we get that plan amendment in place. So I'm working a lot with employers to document um, for two purposes, for ERISA fiduciary duties of running your plan uh, and, and making sure we're doing what's best for plan participants, but also internal revenue code and making sure we're complying. So if I'm working with clients properly, we're really doing this together and moving through this in a way where I'm really helping with those plan amendments on the backside, making sure and that if there are any operational issues, we're catching them quickly. So honestly, it's being mindful, to use that term, about your employee benefit plans with your vendors. And I should just be a little piece along the way to, to give you um, help and to make sure that, that I see overall the big picture and, and that it is really to show that you're doing your duties under the plan. A lot of times then, though, my clients all of a sudden pick up the phone and say, hey, we caught something. And, and that's when we're usually going into that EPCRS mode and that, that, you know, depending on how, what they find, how big of a deal that it really becomes. So we're compliance attorneys, uh, but we like to be more proactive than reactive. Um, and, and then a lot of it is uh, what we do. And I think Joe is probably similar. 
my job is to get to know my client and their business and what their goals are. And so that I'm thinking about them um, and, and sending them information or when they call, being able to immediately say option A, B, and C, here's why, and here's how I rank it and why I rank it. And it's because I know the client, their goals, and I've worked with them that, that I understand what their business is and what their needs are. Um, and, and we're really tax lawyers that, that spread out. And so we can, we can help in a lot of different areas, all just to help people's businesses be more efficient and pay less money to the federal government, right? And, and to run in a way that, that is not leading, the, like nobody's in the business of running benefit plans except for my TPAs, right? Um, everybody else is running a business to make money doing something else. Our benefit plans are just a, a burden almost. Well, don't look at them that way. They need to be a cog in the machine that runs efficiently, runs effectively to attract talent, to, to protect people, right? Like even group health insurance, it, it keeps people working. If they're, if they're out sick, they're not in their seats working. So all our benefit plans are really meant to make that big business work better. Um, but if it becomes a problem, it's dragging the business down. So we as transactional lawyers try to really come in and make your plans so efficient and work so well um, that they make your business better and that you really don't need me much until changes in law, uh, you want to go start a new type of plan. Um, maybe you want to match your employees who are paying their student loans and, and need to think through that. So, Ryan, I'm pedantic. I'm sorry. You asked me about myself. I won't shut up. Uh, sir, you are fine. Uh, Josh Sutton, tax and ERISA attorney with Chamberlain Hard or Herdlick, excuse me. Really, really appreciate you stopping by and being with us, providing some insight into today's conversation. A lot of great stuff for the employer's side here in part two, uh, you know, diving into Secure Point Act 2.0. Joe, before we wrap up, why don't you bottom line it for us, for those employers out there? Any final thoughts and just items that they really need to remember? Ryan, I suspect not a lot of people took pen and paper and created their own scorecard as <laughs> sure. to when all these things go into effect, right? And a lot of these things are staggered over time. Some things go into effect now, some next year, some over the next three to five years, some are even 10 years down the road. So, I mean, the rules are changing now and will be spread out, obviously, over the next generally few years. And trying to keep track is going to be important, right? We're doing that in our regular review meetings with our employer clients. And so if someone's interested in learning more, we've got a piece we're happy to share with them at no cost, happy to connect, explaining how we help employers and their employees make the most of their retirement plans. We, we often tell people, Ryan, retirement is often the single biggest financial goal people will have in their lifetimes. They may want to buy a house and the mortgage is the way to get there. But retirement, you spend your whole life saving for and then spending it out the rest of your lifetime. And so we've made this a crux of what we do for our clients, both employers and employees. And that's why it's so important to us because it's so important to them. And so we're happy to go through all the stages of Secure Act 2.0, how to implement it, what to look for. Happy to help send that piece if that's helpful for them. 
Fantastic, Joe. Well, look, I appreciate you and Josh uh, for, you know, carbon time out of your busy days. You both have clients to serve and we'll let you get back to doing that. But again, a lot of wisdom, a lot of guidance, a lot of value, I think, out there in today's conversation for the employers. And then, of course, if you yourself as an employee and you've got questions, circle back and hit part one uh, where we dove into those, you know, how Secure Act 2.0 is going to be impacting you and your world. But uh, Joe, appreciate you. Josh, likewise, uh, looking forward to see you back here maybe for another episode down the road. Josh, you know, if you guys will invite me, you know, I'll show up. <laughs> we'll invite you. You're good. Very man. good. You guys take care. Thanks, Josh. Thank you very much. Of course, for our audience, we want to say a final thank you guys for jumping aboard and hanging out with us on the show today. If you took anything away from today's conversation, you benefited from it in any way, shape or form, go ahead and hit that subscribe button then on whichever platform you checked us out on today. That way you never miss out on a future conversation where Joe, myself, maybe another guest, we jump into a unique wealth management topic so that, you know, we unpack a lot of the value, a lot of the uh, conversational points within it and have you come out better for it on the other side. Before Joe, for Josh, I'm Ryan. We're going to say so long now, but we appreciate you stopping by and being with us on Your Money and a Cup of Joe. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Financial Services Incorporated. UBS Financial Services Incorporated does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. This material is made available for use by CEG. Neither UBS Financial Services Incorporated nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Incorporated offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC registered broker dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services Incorporated is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA, member SIPC. Joe Kaleo at Kaleo Wealth Management Group, UBS Financial Services Incorporated. Office address 200 West Highway 6, Suite 400 in Waco, Texas, 76712.